0: This is ReachMD. Welcome to Spotlight on Rheumatic Diseases. This episode titled, Exploring the Underdiagnosis of AS Within and Around Rheumatology Practices, is sponsored by Lilly. The views and or opinions expressed are of the medical expert and not necessarily by Eli Lilly and company. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Bernholz. Coming to you from the annual rheumatology meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, this is ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Joining me today is Dr. Sanjay Chabra, Director of Rheumatology at the Texas Arthritis Center in El Paso, Texas. Dr. Chabra has been among Orange County, uh, California's top doctors in rheumatology for six consecutive years and was twice named America's top physician in rheumatology. And today, we'll be exploring the underdiagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis within and around rheumatology practices. So, Dr. Chabra. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. so good to have you here. So maybe to start, I'd love to get a refresher for our audience on some of the epidemiology, the scope and burden of this disease. What can you tell us a little bit about the prevalence of ankylosing spondylitis and back pain in general?
1: You know, I'm really glad you asked that. When we look at back pain in general, it's the second leading cause for folks in the United States to go to their doctor. It's the fifth leading cause for hospitalization. When we look at folks from an inflammatory back pain, we have to look at back pain at large. And chronic back pain, anything that's over three months, if you look at the U.S. population, about 19% of folks will have chronic back pain. When you distill that down to inflammatory back pain, it goes down to about 30% of that. So 6% of the folks will have this. And when we look at those who have a prevalence for ankylosing spondylitis specifically, it's going to be a prevalence of 056 We're familiar with the data on rheumatoid arthritis, which has a prevalence of 0.6. So really, these two illnesses are almost neck and neck. Well, that's a particular
0: point I really want to focus with you on, that delay. But maybe before we get there as a preface, we can uh, try to understand better the distinction and differentiating mechanical back pain from inflammatory back pain. What can you tell us about that? Because I imagine there is some continued confusion around that in the general practice arena.
1: There definitely is. You know, the mechanical back pain patient is going to be somebody who has a history of injury. They could be at any age. They could have had a reason as far as, if you look at an imaging, the disc disease, degenerative disease. They could have stenosis. Usually their pain is going to be something that happens with activity. So they're the couch potato, they don't want to move. Uh, They're the ones who feel worse with movement and they tend to sleep well through the night because they're not necessarily moving. Uh, When you look at the person with inflammatory back pain, this is a younger person, somebody under the age of 40 or 45, they don't have a dramatic history. It's just kind of back pain that creeped up on them. No motor vehicle accident, no fall from a ladder, so to speak. They just have this insidious onset of pain and their pain seems to be a little different in the sense that they feel better when they're moving. These are folks that are your runners, your bike riders, they're the swimmers, they're the ones who wanna stay in motion because when they do become a couch potato and watch a football game, they're gonna feel pain getting up and they also have pain at night. So the mechanical back pain, we know movement hurts. With the inflammatory back pain, movement makes them better. So, if we come back to ankylosing
0: spondylitis, from your vantage point, how often is it underdiagnosed? Perhaps both in the primary care arena and the rheumatology arena.
1: It is probably, aside from lupus, in our field of rheumatology, one of the most unrecognized illnesses. The delay in illness is anywhere from eight to 11 years. In women in particular, their presentation is different and that further delays their illness by another two to three years such that they'll have more upper back pain, thoracic back pain, neck pain. It's more diffuse in nature. There's more fatigue associated with it, more muscular complaints. The traditional male presentation of the SI joint being inflamed or low back pain, there's still a lot of work to do to recognize that history. And Uh, as we start to have therapies that are more targeted and more effective, hopefully we can also bring this to the forefront where people think about it earlier to narrow that gap.
0: Now, it sounds like you're already kind of alluding to this, but I'm sure one question that comes up among uh, those who don't have quite the same expertise in inflammatory uh, diseases is trying to ascertain whether there are uh, multifactorial reasons for the under recognition of this disease, or if there's a smoking gun, as it were.
1: You know, I think it's just because no two patients with AAS is going to be alike. There's so much heterogeneity in the illness. Uh, people perceive pain differently. It's not like a blood pressure or cholesterol where we can be targeted with a number. We're asking them about something that's emotional and personal to them, and one person's level of tolerance for pain may be completely different from another. The key thing is is to try and educate the community that back pain that's persistent over three months or back pain that occurs without a history of injury needs to be treated differently than typical physiotherapy and over-the-counter intervention.
0: Yeah, clearly that's a really important takeaway of our discussion today. One question that comes up then is how the disease is classified and whether current classifications of the disease help clarify or actually further obscure our ability to recognize it faster. What are your thoughts on, on those classification systems? That's a systems?
1: very good question. That's the alphabet soup of all our illnesses here. We use a treat-to-target methodology when we're looking at rheumatoid arthritis, but when we use different functional components, different criteria, it's very overwhelming to teach even a medical student about all of these criteria. But what's held kind of as a benchmark is the ASAS criteria. In addition, you'll have spondyloarthritis-type features. And by doing that, you funnel things down to try and decipher that inflammatory back pain from a wear-and-tear arthritis. It is helpful, but it requires somebody to really have a passion or see enough of this to recognize it. If you're seeing the whole spectrum of diseases as a primary care doctor and know what studies to look for. So there's a great deal of education. It can be overwhelming
0: And you talked about some of the testing that goes into the classification from a research standpoint they are important, the HLA-B27 blood testing, imaging. How do you incorporate these in a way that, speak to other rheumatologists, that practically helps them to say, this is the direction I should go in to make sure I'm not missing this?
1: That's definitely the crux of helping our patients is to identify and know what we're treating and to think about this. So when we look at the role of the HLA-B27, sadly enough, so many folks will think that's the holy grail to ankylosing spondylitis. It can be negative depending on different population subsets. It's more positive in the Caucasian population and those in the African-American descent, they're going to have... About a 30 to 40% reduction in that findings for HLA-B27. So it is theoretically possible to have true AS without an HLA-B27. Although when you do have it, it is helpful because uh, one in three individuals who has an HLA-B27 finding is going to have AS. Uh, However, we can't just rely on that with the highest degree of sensitivity and specificity because we'll miss folks. When we look then to the next level of identification, we're going to look at imaging. It's nothing more devastating than seeing severe sacroiliitis or erosive changes at the SI joint for a young individual as this disease tends to affect, and then now when try and put things back together again with therapy. So when we look at the imaging, the MRI has changed our early identification accesses. So when we use the MRI, we're able to use the STIR images where you don't have to expose the patient to a radioactive dots. So that combined with the laboratory studies, now we're able to look at sed rates and CRPs. The story starts to evolve from a scientific standpoint, whether you're looking at labs or imaging, but the real crux of it is getting that history from the patient.
0: Yeah, certainly it sounds so. And your allusion to radiologists was a really good one in this case because I think of radiology training Uh, along the lines of, exactly as you put it, pattern recognition. You see 100 million normal radiographs so that when they see anything that's vaguely off, they catch it really fast and there's a pattern that, that goes into that. It seems like a similar process in rheumatology towards being able to know that something's off and get that instinct based on a pattern recognition and be able to pursue it aggressively further. Is that the case?
1: Very much so. I think if we understand that everybody's disease may be unique in how they present, but there is a crux or a framework to the illness that if we can recognize and tease it out, may take an extra few minutes to do that, but it can have a real rewarding experience for the patient who has struggled for many years to identify what it is that they have, and then the next step is to also recognize what appropriate treatments they need, because if we identify their illness and we don't have an opportunity to help them with a therapy, then we haven't done them any good. So it takes the tools of asking the appropriate questions, but also being aware of what to do next.
0: And are there any educational principles that you find yourself from a pattern standpoint of teaching, uh, coming back to again and again to try to help other healthcare professionals uh, get this on their radar a little faster?
1: The biggest thing I use is kind of a mnemonic called eye pain." And so that stands for "I for an Insidious in onset." These people didn't have a dramatic injury. Uh, When we look at their pain, we're going to see that their age of onset is going to have been under the age of 45. Uh, They have pain at night. They don't have improvement with rest, but they do have improvement with activity. We can do the showbiz testing, the physical movements try and check chest to wall, occiput to wall, all of those physical exam findings in our office. Inflammatory back pain by just asking a little bit more historical questions. And you see the patient. If they're somebody who's 65, 70 with back pain, it's clearly likely to be spinal stenosis or degenerative in nature. However, somebody in their 20s and 30s to think a little differently. The other thing that I teach a lot of our physical therapists who deal with these folks is I ask them, you know, you're doing the best. Your patients are trying to be compliant. Have you ever found someone who doesn't get better? And usually a bunch of hands go up. And uh, what we take from that discussion is that, well, how do we improve things? If they're not getting better from movement, maybe we need to explore further. And that's when they come our way and we identify that they have inflammatory back pain.
0: That's excellent. And you mentioned physical therapists, which brings up uh, another good subject area. Who is critical on the multidisciplinary uh, team front to get incorporated a little bit sooner to help shore that gap in the delay in diagnosis?
1: It takes a village. I've had the relationship over the years with spine surgeons before they bring the scalpel to the patient to look at the age, ask these kind of questions that we're sharing now, and to send the patient our way. We might find someone who could benefit from intervention and not have surgery. The last thing that the surgeons want is to have a surgery with a bad outcome. And so they're looking forward to find a way to help those patients just the same. And so I've gone through and taught them about what we've learned with uh, inflammatory back pain and they've been happy to send patients our way. See, unconsciously, these folks will have learned how to ambulate, how to get through their day using certain muscles and avoiding others. And if we don't recognize it early enough, they will lose that spinal mobility. And so when we talk to the uh, primary care doctors, we're trying to get them to recognize a younger person hasn't walked the earth long enough to have had degenerative changes when we're speaking to physical therapists, we're trying to see where is the asymmetric person that's not responding to intervention. Our pain management specialists are doing all sorts of maneuvers now with trigger injections and laser treatments. And when they can't get the patient chronically under control, they need to consider other options. And that's when uh, we try and say, think of inflammatory back pain earlier, not later.
0: Well, with that great parting, takeaway comment on keeping an open mind, which I think is a beautiful way to close our interview. I do want to thank you, Dr. Sanjay Chabra, for joining us to talk about back pain, inflammatory versus uh, mechanical, the underdiagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis, and what we can do about it to get better and shore that gap in the diagnosis. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: This program was sponsored by Lilly. If you have missed any part of this discussion, visit reachmd.com slash spotlight on. Thank you for listening. This is ReachMD, be part of the knowledge.